Last week, we talked about uh, turn the other cheek, right? One of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible, Matthew 5, 38 to 42. And essentially what we found was that turn the other cheek doesn't mean anything like what most of us have been brought up all of our lives to think that it means. And I don't have time to go through all of that and rehash everything we looked at last week. Uh, If you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to it. Today's message won't fully make sense to you until you hear last week's message. And again, all of our messages, you can listen to them for free online. Watch them online on our website, www.myselfone.com. But anyway, two conclusions we came to at the end of that message, all right? Two conclusions we came to were, first of all, Jesus was not saying, when he said, turn the other cheek, he was not saying that Christians are supposed to be pushovers or doormats or that we should be easy to take advantage of. No. And then the second thing, the second conclusion we came to is that actually when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he wasn't talking about the use of force at all. See, a lot of Christians over the years have used that passage to say it is wrong for a Christian to use force, to violently resist someone. And we saw that that's actually not at all what Jesus was talking about in the least. He wasn't thinking about violent situations, okay? And of course, coming to that conclusion, we can't just leave that there because that opens up a whole other can of worms. If Jesus wasn't forbidding Christians to use force, then we have to ask the question, well, When is it okay to use force? When is it okay for a Christian to be violent? All right? And so last week was kind of the pizzazz. This week is is the homework. And what I want to do today is I want to set a foundation for us of properly thinking about the use of force. Properly thinking about the use of force. When is it okay for a Christian to use force? When is it not okay for a Christ follower to use force? And I just think, you know, we're living in a world that is descending more and more into madness. I mean, right now, there are conflicts going on right now that most of us have never even heard about. There's a conflict going on right now in Central Africa, in the Congo, that has taken more than 5 million lives in the last few years. Many of you haven't heard about it. It's not in the news because there's nothing there that we really want. And people are dying. We're living in a world that is increasingly descending into chaos and violence and darkness. And I just think if anyone needs to have some answers about justice and peace and when to use force and when not to, it needs to be us Christians. And over the years, too many Christians have approached this as a one-size-fits-all solution. On the one hand, you've got Christians who say it's never okay to use force. Never, ever, ever. Not even to protect the innocent. And then on the other side, you've got other Christians where when you hear them in the news and stuff, it seems like they think war is the answer to everything. And as we were talking about last week already, what I was saying, I'm going to say it again today, there is no one-size-fits-all solution to the conflicts going on around the world. And over the last couple of years, I've noticed a sparked increase in interest in the church on the issue of force. And I've had many conversations with, pe- with people from a younger generation, my generation, younger generation, many conversations over the last couple of years, people saying, what does the Bible say about this? And I just think in this increasingly violent world, we need to be able to bring God's truth to the light to help people act in just ways that help people who need it. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to lay a foundation. We're going to look at various scenarios and we're just going to work our way systematically through them and say, see, what does the Bible say about this? And what does the Bible say about this? And what does the Bible say about this? So we can come out of here with a holistic, whole Bible paradigm of looking at the use of force. And just to start this off, I want to share two stories just to, just to illustrate the fact that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. I want to share two stories. I was thinking about them from the last 50 years of world history. Two stories that came to my mind this week, and I thought about both these stories often throughout the week as I was getting ready for this message, because they just illustrate the fact that it's not always nonviolence and it's not always violence. And the first story that comes to my mind is the American Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. Um, I have different heroes from the past, people I look up to. I've read their biographies and I've learned from them and I admire their character and some of the things they did for God. And one of my uh, heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
And he was, I mean, I'm obviously oversimplifying a little bit here because you can't shrink down the American civil rights movement to one person. But certainly, Dr. Dr. King was one of the key leaders who spearheaded the American civil rights movement in the 1960s. And uh, it's hard to believe that it's just 50 years ago, but at that time in the United States, there was these horrible segregation laws, which humiliated and oppressed the black people in America. So a black person had to give up their seat for a white person on a bus, and black people couldn't use white people's bathrooms or fountains, and their kids couldn't go to white people's schools. And, And so these were humiliating, unjust laws. And so Dr. King Uh, spearheaded this civil rights movement to overturn these laws. The amazing thing about him is he refused. He was very stern about this. He refused to let any of his followers use violence to accomplish their means. And so when they were attacked, when they were bullied, when they were arrested, when they got phone calls threatening their kids, when their houses were burned, when they were vandalized, and, and all of these things, they never returned back threats. They never returned back violence for violence or insult for insult. And the amazing thing is God, it was just, I mean, God was just involved in that thing and God used that nonviolent movement to overturn an evil system. Powerfully, God used it. Godly men and women, all right? Now, the problem is that some people have looked at stories like that and they say, see, nonviolence is always the way to go. See, look at how well it worked there. And again, I I am sympathetic with their feelings because certainly God did use it there. It certainly was God in that thing. And it was the right thing for Dr. King and his followers to do. But what worked in the American civil rights movement in the 1960s doesn't work everywhere. And if we fast forward 30 years after the civil rights movement to 1994, another situation cropped up. We've all heard about this one, a little country in the middle of Africa known as Rwanda. It's just a tiny dot on the map, but we've all heard about it. And in 1994, the United Nations attempted to use a nonviolent solution to protect the ethnic Tutsis, minority Tutsis, from the majority ethnic group, which was the Hutus. And they tried to use a nonviolent uh, solution to keep the Tutsis safe from the Hutus. And so they sent in peacekeepers, but they said, you're not allowed to shoot. Under no circumstances can you shoot. We are going to protect the Tutsis by negotiation and diplomacy and and observation. That's how we're going to protect them. Of course, on April 6th, the president's plane was shot down and the Hutu tribe erupted in murderous anger. And they went on a hundred-day rampage for a hundred days, just over three months. And they systematically, they had the names. They knew where all the Tutsis lived. They systematically, they went house to house to house to house. And they dragged the the Tutsi men, women, and children out into the streets and brutally hacked them to death. 800,000 people massacred, mostly by machete, in a space of three months while the world watched. And I would say that the world watched helplessly, except that the world wasn't helpless. The major powers were all there. Tanks, armored personnel carriers, guns, fighters. And they could have used force anywhere during those 100 days, and especially right at the beginning. And yes, some people would have had to die. But they could have stopped that conflict very, very quickly. And so we see, yes, sometimes nonviolence is a powerful tool in the hands of God to overturn an evil system. But sometimes nonviolence is a shameful act that allows evil people to trample on the lives of the innocent. And so the question I want to look at today is, as believers, we have an advantage over the rest of the world. We have God's Word. And it's amazing what this word has to say about when to meekly submit and when to stand up and fight. Let's pray and then let's begin to look at what it says. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your mercy and goodness in leaving us your word. I thank you for the wisdom that is contained in it. Father, I pray that through this message, Lord, you will give us a right godly paradigm for looking at the world and looking at the use of force. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, before we get into some of the different scenarios of when you can use force and when you cannot use force, we first have to ask the question, is it ever okay to kill someone? Is it ever okay? Is there ever a situation when it is okay for a follower of Christ to take a human life? 
Last week, I got this question uh, almost immediately after last week's message. Uh, one woman was wondering, you know, if I'm a Christian and I, and I go to war for my country and some other country's doing something evil, and then I shoot an enemy soldier on that battlefield, is that murder? Have I, am I guilty of something in God's sight? Okay, so we got to first look at that before we can look at the rest of the scenarios, right? Well, I mean, a lot of people think it's clear. In the Ten Commandments, commandment number six says, thou shalt not kill. And for many people, this has been the beginning and the end word. In other words, there is no other, there's no way to get around it. The Ten Commandments, very important Ten Commandments, this is God's law, says thou shalt not kill. And many people have interpreted this to mean over the years, over the centuries, over the decades, that it is never ever okay in any situation for a Christian to take another human being's life. Okay? And it does seem that way. We look at this verse, it does seem that there's no way around that. The only problem is, just again like last week, and we looked at the contradictions which are caused by some of the popular Christian interpretations of famous passages. The only problem is if we interpret this as meaning that it is never okay to take a human life, then we end up with dozens and dozens and dozens of contradictions right throughout Scripture. Let me just show you a few. Genesis 9, verses 5 to 6, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here in Genesis 9. And the reason is because I want to show you God's thinking. How does God think? But the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. If that means it's always bad to take a human life, then we immediately have a contradiction here in Genesis 9, 5 to 6, because Genesis 9, 5 to 6 says, and I, again, this is God speaking, will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. Now, again, clearly we have a contradiction here. Something is wrong with our interpretation. Because we have God saying, thou shalt not kill. And then we have God saying there are certain, certain circumstances where you actually must take human life. All right? And we're going to look at that. First thing I want you to notice, though, however, is because a lot of people, I'm using the Old Testament here, a lot of people at the moment, because we're just trained in our Christian culture, we're trained, we have these glasses, that whenever we read the, the Old Testament, that stuff doesn't apply now, because that was when God was in a di different stage in his life. That was when he was in his juvenile uh, hormonal stage, when he was mad and he wanted to kill people, right? He was mean then. That's how we think, Yeah. And then, in, thank goodness, in the New Testament, Jesus came and died on the cross, and now God has become a lot more like us. He's just more civilized and humane and likable and cuddly. Well, we've dealt with that many times in messages here, but I want to deal with it again because that, those glasses are very thick in our culture. That's how we read the Old Testament. Automatically, we write off anything in the Old Testament. That was when God was mean. That doesn't apply now. Again, the first thing I want to say to you here today is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is impossible for God to change. How could a being who is infinite and who is infinitely perfect ever change his thinking or ever change his character? Because if he changed his thinking, that would have to mean that he improved something, which would mean he wasn't perfect to begin with. How can an infinitely perfect being ever change character or thinking? I mean, oh, I guess I was wrong back there. That wasn't quite the right way to do it, so now I think this way. That is not possible for God, especially for a God who sees everything into the future. It's impossible for him to change. So the same God that is writing this here and speaking here in Genesis 9 is the same God we're worshiping today. He was just and fair and righteous then. He is just as just and fair and righteous now. And he's a loving father now. He was a loving father when he wrote this. He's no different in the old and the new. A loving father wrote this passage. See, and this is where uh, one of the things I often hear, one of the arguments I often hear is people say, I am against any kind of use of force or taking of human life, whether in war or the death penalty or whatever. I'm against all of that because I just value human life too much. Okay? By the way, I'm not making fun of these people. Okay? Godly people believe that. Some of you might be here. You might have relatives that believe that. My point here is not to make fun of people. My point is, because again, godly people can believe that. My, my, the question I'm asking today is, is it right? Because good people can believe wrongly. When what does the Bible really say? 
But you hear people say, I just, I value human life too much. I could never take a human life. Here's what I want you to notice. That is false thinking because God thinks exactly the opposite. God says, for God made human beings in his own image. The reason we sometimes have to take human life, if anyone takes human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. God says the reason you sometimes have to take a human life is because human life is so valuable. So we have human beings saying, I'll never take a human life because human life is too valuable. God says that's humanist thinking, humanistic thinking. That's not God thinking. God says human life is so valuable, sometimes evil people need to have theirs taken from them because they've trampled on something so valuable. For God made human beings in his own image. He did not put in the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9 because he was looking to get rid of people. It's like, I just need excuses to kill people. So murderers, well, let's kill them off. That's not why he does it. For God made human beings in his own image. That's why. What does that mean? Every human being, every person here today has been made in the image of God. We are different than animals. We have infinitely much more value than animals. You can go home today and shoot a deer and turn it into meat and skin and whatever else you want to turn a deer into and good on you, okay? Excellent. Yes. Always the Grunthal section on the left side here. <laughs> and, and I mean, you can take a pig, right? You can take a pig and slaughter them and turn them into bacon. You've done something good for the world, right? Because they're just animals. They're just animals. You can use them for food and all sorts of stuff. I mean, we need to treat them right, but they're just animals. And human beings are radically different because each human being that has ever been made has a piece of God's image stamped into them doesn't matter if they're handicapped, not handicapped. doesn't matter what race they're from. doesn't matter if they haven't been born yet, they're still in the womb, or if they're out of the womb, if they're rich, if they're poor, if they're dumb, if they're smart, if they're athletic, not athletic. Every human being ever made, every, each one of you here today, including the ones who don't believe in God and who hate God, each person has been stamped with the image of God, which means that each person has eternal, precious value. Psalm 139, God says that he, no human being is a mistake because God has knit every human being together in the mother's womb. He personally knits. He's not standing back and saying, oh, look at that person who popped out. In the womb, he's knitting together. In his foreknowledge, in his awesomeness, he's knitting together a totally unique personality and soul and mind and spirit. Every human being, 7 billion people on the planet right now, and no two alike. Each one knit together in a mother's womb. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his masterpiece. Each human being is God's masterpiece. He pours his creativity in there, stamps some of his image on there. Not because of what we do, but just because we are human beings. And God says, these human beings that I've made are so precious. They are so valuable that if some evil person dares to take one of these lives, they must pay the ultimate price. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're basically in shock right now. Um, Chris is saying that we must have the death penalty here in Canada, okay? And that that's going to be in all the coffee shops this week, I already know. They'll be throwing darts at my picture at Tim Hortons, okay? <laughs> so let me just tell you what I am not saying. N-O-T, read my lips. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. I am not saying that Canada has to have the death penalty. I am not saying. There might be practical reasons why it doesn't work. Maybe, perhaps in a country, there is, uh, there's not a, a way for every person in that country to get a fair trial. Maybe the way the justice system works, innocent people uh, get, you know, get uh, uh, convicted wrongly, and we wouldn't want to be uh, convicting lots of innocent people and giving them de the death penalty. There might be very practical reasons not to have the death penalty. So I'm not saying for or against it here on this platform today. Okay. But what I am looking at is the reasoning. If your reasoning for saying that we should never take a human life is because you value it so much, you need to realize that is humanistic thinking, not God thinking, because God's thinking is exactly the opposite. God says, because human life is so precious, sometimes it must be taken. I mean, we've all been in stores, right, where they have those signs that say, they say, you break it, you pay for it, right? 
And if you have young kids, you haven't been in one of those stores for years. I haven't been now for three or four years. <laughs> you break it, you pay for it. What does that mean? It means that if you break it, you're going to have to give the owner of that store the value of what that thing was worth. Now, if I go into a store that has a sign that says, you break it, you pay for it, and I grab something off the shelf, and I smash it on the floor, and the owner comes to me and says, that'll be 25 cents. What they just told me tells me a lot about the value of that object, doesn't it? They just told me that thing was worthless. 25 cents, that's nothing. That thing wasn't worth anything. If they tell me, you now owe me five bucks, well, it's worth a bit more, right? It's going to cost me three coffees at Timmy's. Wouldn't want to do that too much. <laughs> but it's still pretty cheap. That thing still isn't worth very much. Five bucks, whatever I have to pay when I smash that thing, shows everybody what that thing was worth. Now, if they come out and tell me that's going to cost you 5,000 bucks, <gasps> heart attack, fetal position on the floor, <laughs> when I get up, $5,000! What on earth could that thing be made out of, right? That would, I mean, it must be extremely rare. It must be extremely precious. It must be extremely valuable for that little thing I just smashed to be worth $5,000. That is God's reasoning in Genesis chapter 9. Sometimes when evil people trample on the lives of the innocent, sometimes the only response that properly takes into account the value of what was taken and the seriousness and soberness of the action and the evilness of that action is for the evil person to pay with the ultimate price with their life. That's God's reasoning. Now, right away, I know there's a couple of objections. First objection is, well, it's God's job to take people's lives, not ours. That's not my human responsibility. If God wants to protect the innocent and take the lives of evil people who are trampling on the lives of the innocent, that's God's job, not mine. As a human being, it's not my job to take another human being's life. Again, that is humanistic thinking masquerading as spirituality because what does it say up there? If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. See, God has delegated to human beings the task of bringing about justice and peace and the protection of the innocent. And if we will not step up and do it, God won't. And the innocent will be trampled on. And life and the value of human life will be trampled on and our hands will be held accountable. Our, there will be blood on our hands. Because he said by human hands, it'll be taken. Now see, we actually understand this principle. We could talk about provision. We all know that the Bible promises that God will provide for each and every one of us. We follow him. But now if someone reads those verses and decides, well, I don't need to work anymore, guess what? The provision's going to dry up pretty quick, yeah? Their family's going to starve. We all know that. Because part of God's provision is he has delegated to us the responsibility of eating. So Thessalonians says, you don't work, you don't eat. That's the same in this case here. We cannot over-spiritualize things and just say, God will do it because we don't, we don't find that, we, we just find it distasteful. So God will do it instead of us. No, God has delegated to us. This brings me to the second objection. I already touched on this before, but I want to hit it head on now. We're back at that objection. For some of us, it's just too hard for us to believe. Just for too much of our lives, we have read the Old Testament saying it doesn't apply anymore. And so I want to show you the relevance because this is not just any verse. I did not just pull this verse at random out of the Old Testament and then just say, see, here's how God thinks. This is actually a very special passage. So let me just give you a little bit of background, okay? And we're going to review some things that we've talked about here at Southland before, but we've got to review them again and again until we begin to think correctly theologically. Okay? But people have this idea, Jesus died on a cross, that's the new covenant. When he died on the cross, the new covenant cancels out the old covenant. And what we think the old covenant is, is the entire Old Testament. Jesus died on the cross, new covenant, and it just sounds so good. New Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament canceled by New Testament. Okay? Except that we don't actually follow it. We like reading the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so we read those and, well, these haven't been canceled. <laughs> Some nice things in there about prayer and healing. And so those haven't been canceled, okay? But the new covenant cancels out all of the old covenant except the parts we like. That's kind of where we're at, okay? There's a huge doctrinal problem with the whole thing, and that is this. The Old Testament is not the old covenant. 
The Old Testament has many covenants in it, and it has lots of things, the prophets and the Psalms and Proverbs, that aren't part of any covenant. Okay? When people say that Jesus canceled the Old Covenant at the cross, what they mean is the Mosaic Covenant, which was the covenant given to Moses just for the Jews on Mount Sinai, and it is only one little piece of the Old Testament. It's just one little piece. And in that piece, yes, there are the ceremonial laws. In the Mosaic Law, we have the moral law and the ceremonial law, and the ceremonial laws are the sacrifices and the eating laws and the temple and all sorts of stuff. And, and those, but those laws were never given to us Gentiles, never. They were only given to the Jews. That's the Mosaic Covenant. It was a covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai after the Jews came out of Egypt. And Jesus certainly canceled out those ceremonial laws, the big part of the Mosaic Covenant, when he died on the cross. But the Old Testament is not the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is just parts of the first few books. Okay? There's other covenants in the Old Testament that are clearly eternal. There's the Davidic Covenant. God made a covenant with David that someone from your line will always sit on the throne forever. The eternal covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, your descendants will always own this land. The land of Israel will always belong to the Jews forever. Even after Jesus comes back. Those are eternal covenants. Jesus did not die on the cross to break God's promises. And this passage of scripture here is pulled out of a bigger passage, a very important passage. You can write this down and you can look it up this week. It's from Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 to Genesis 9, verse 17. Theologians call that section the Noahic covenant. So there's the Davidic covenant, which was God with David, the Abrahamic covenant, which was God with Abraham, the Mosaic covenant, which was God with Moses. There's the Noahic covenant, which was a very, very important covenant that God made with Noah. Okay? It's one of the oldest covenants. It's one of the first covenants God ever made with a human being. This covenant was made right after the flood. Right after the flood, which is 858 years before Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay? This covenant was not made with the Jewish people. There was no Jewish people in the time of Noah. Abraham, the father of the Jews, wouldn't be born for another few hundred years. Who are the descendants of Noah? It's not a trick question. All of us. There was nobody left, right? It was Noah, his sons, and their wives. Every one of us, people, we often think as Christians, we think of all being the descendants of Adam. That's true. But Adam branched out, then everybody got killed. It was back down to Noah. We're all from Noah. Okay? So God made the Noahic covenant with Noah and all of his descendants. This is a covenant with all human beings on the earth. And what was the covenant? It's a very famous covenant um, that we all know. It's in all the children's Bibles. The Noah and his family came off the ark. And God said to Noah, I will never flood the earth again and kill all the people and animals. Never do it again. Okay? Let me read it to you. Okay? Let's read it. From Genesis chapter 9. Yes, I am confirming, this is God speaking, my covenant with you. So this is the Noahic covenant. Again, remember, people are thinking Jesus' death canceled the whole Old Testament. The Old Covenant. The Old Testament is not the Old Covenant. The Old Testament has a whole bunch of covenants in it and a whole bunch of stuff that isn't even a covenant. Jesus' death on the cross cancels out one piece of the Mosaic Covenant, which is one little piece of the Old Testament. Okay? Let's keep reading. I'm confirming my covenant with you, Noah. Never again, look at that, never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant with you and all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the what covenant? Eternal covenant. Eternal. That means, for those of you who are a little challenged in your definitions, forever. Okay? I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. So let me stop here. Did Jesus cancel the Noahic covenant? By no means. Okay? Every time you see a rainbow in the, sky, in the sky, that's the sign. There was no rainbows before the flood because of how the earth was and the atmospheric conditions. And now, after the flood, God said, here's a sign. It's the rainbow. And every time in spring and summer and fall, you see a rainbow in the sky, you are seeing a sign that God gave to you and me through our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather 4,286 years ago, Noah. 
when he said, I make a promise with you and all your descendants, which is all the human race today, that I will never flood the earth again. Now, Jesus didn't cancel out that covenant because we still have rainbows. He didn't cancel out rainbows at the cross. <laughs> now, you're convinced, I know, because how can you not be? It's the truth. It's just one little problem. We all know about this part of the covenant. We all like this part of the covenant. This is the part about God being good to us. The only thing is there's two parts to the covenant in Genesis 8.20 to 9.17. It starts with God saying what he'll do, then it gives his expectations of humans, and then it ends with what God will do again. It's two promises, and in between his expectations all sandwiched together in one covenant. And here are his expectations of human beings in the Noahic covenant. There's three of them. First, he says to Noah, you and your descendants will spread out and be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. We've done a pretty good job of that human beings. Give yourself a pat on the back, okay? We've filled pretty much everywhere. Lots of people everywhere, okay? And we here at Selfen are doing our part to increase that, all right? Second thing, he said, uh, don't drink blood. Law as Christians, we're pretty good at that, okay? Third thing, human life is so precious that if someone dares to take it, you will take the lives of the evil. Now, we don't like that part, Genesis 9, 5 to 6, but here's the problem. You can't say Jesus' death cancels this out unless you cancel the whole covenant because it all goes together. You can't just arbitrarily cut up a covenant and say, well, we like this part, so that part stays, and we don't like this part, so we take that one out. It's all sandwiched together. The promise to never flood again, the promise which we still see the sign in the sky every year with the rainbow, is part and parcel with this. So guess what? God still thinks this way. God still thinks this way. So we're back at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which we looked at briefly last week. What does he say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There's a time when the lives of innocent people demand that the right thing to do is to kill and make war against evil. So we come back to Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment. What then did God mean when he said, thou shalt not kill? What, what does it mean, right? I mean, and, and again, so many contradictions. We've just seen Genesis 9, we've seen Ecclesiastes 3, and all the times he told righteous men like Mo, Moses and Joshua and David to go to war, Okay? So how can he do that? Because we know God will never tell anyone to break one of his commands. He, you'll never find anywhere in Scripture God telling someone, go and commit adultery. Well, that won't happen. You'll never find anywhere in Scripture God saying to someone, go and take advantage of some orphans and widows. You'll never find it. Because God doesn't tell people to do things that are against his laws. So how can God tell people to go and kill when the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill? Well, if we look just under the surface, and we don't have to look even that deeply, we find that the only reason there's a contradiction is because of the English language. See, the Hebrews had seven separate different words for killing. And each one was totally different. And it meant something totally different to them. And you wouldn't mix them up in their uses. There were seven different words. It's kind of like cake and pizza are both food. So you can put the, in the sentence the word food but the, and, and it's true, because they're both food, but if I want pizza, I don't want cake, right? Those two things are, yes, they're both food, but they're radically different things. When, I'm, when I want pizza, I want pizza, I don't want cake. When you want cake, you want cake, you don't want pizza. Two radically different words, even though they're both food. Well, the Hebrews had seven words for killing. So, for example, they had a word for if you would accidentally kill someone and was totally innocent, they had a word for that. They had a word for if a soldier in battle would kill another soldier, they had a word for that. And you wouldn't use the accidental one over here because those are two different things. And they also had a word for premeditated murder. And you would never use the one when a soldier kills a soldier or when a person accidentally kills someone else. You would never use that one for murder. And that Hebrew word is used 47 times in the Old Testament. It's called ratzak. I'm butchering it if you're Hebrew, okay? But ratzak is the, is the Hebrew word for murder. It means 
I don't like someone, I hate someone, and so I plan out and carry out a murder. It, it especially has the connotations of revenge. And, and, uh, and because in Middle Eastern culture, in those days, it was all about revenge and honor. We still see that in some cultures today. But, you know, someone would kill someone from your family five generations ago, and five generations later, they're still going back and forth for each other's honor. Now I have to kill one of yours, now you have to kill one of mine. And, and you're not, you, the law, there's no justice. It's just you taking the law into your own hands. Revenge, premeditated murder, that's ratzak. This is specifically for that. Again, ratzak is used 47 times in the Old Testament for only two different things. Again, premeditated murder. There is one other instance where it's used a couple of times in the Old Testament, and that is when you do something um, uh, very reckless that ends up killing someone. For example, if you would get very drunk and then go out and drive your car and kill someone, now you didn't premeditate the murder, but the fact is that you did a wicked, reckless thing that you should not have done, and that was very dangerous, and you ended up killing someone, to the Hebrews, that would also be ratzak. Okay? Now, you probably don't have a whole lot of suspense anymore, but I wonder which one of those Hebrew words is the one in the Sixth Commandment. Well, it's ratzak. See, the Sixth Commandment actually doesn't say, thou shalt not kill. It says, thou shalt not ratzak. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not plan ahead and think about it and hate someone and take revenge into your own hands and kill them. And it is not at all, ever, the word that they would use of two soldiers meeting each other in battle or to take a murderer's life, capital punishment, or to accidentally kill someone completely innocently. It's not that at all. The only thing that is forbidden in the sixth commandment is ratzak, which is murder. And actually, once you realize what the Hebrew word is there, you realize something else. Nowhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, is there ever anywhere a prohibition against taking human life. Only, only against murder. Now, of course, the problem is that the King James Version, which is the one I've got up there for thou shalt not kill, was the dominant Christian translation or English translation of the Bible in all of the English-speaking world from the 1600s to the 1900s for over 300 years. So generations and generations and generations of Christians were brought up thinking that it says thou shalt not kill, you should never ever take human life. Never mind the fact that it causes all kinds of contradictions, that's how many Christians have been brought up to believe. Now some of you might be thinking, well Chris, if it's your word against all the translators of the King James Version, you know, I, I, I think they probably know better than you. Well, just to show you that this isn't just my little messing with the Bible language to make it say what I want it to, let me show you what the most respected modern translations all translate this verse. The NASB is considered to be the most accurate word-for-word -word English translation out right now. You shall not murder. The ESV, one of the most, high, again, right after the NASB, one of the most highly respected, accurate, for accuracy, word-for-word -word translations in the English-speaking world, you shall not murder. The NIV, one of the most popular Bibles ever, now used by millions and millions of English-speaking believers around the world, you shall not murder. Nothing in there about thou shalt not kill. Very, very important. So in other words, Ecclesiastes 3 was right, that there is a time and a place for the use of force to kill. So let's begin to look at some scenarios now. For example, the Bible says it's okay to use force and sometimes even to kill a person if necessary in self-defense. Like I said before, it's actually amazing. The Bible has lots and lots of wisdom about this. Lots. Exodus 22 verse 2 says this, If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. Not guilty of murder. So someone breaks into the house, there's an element of danger, the family's in danger, you're in danger, you fight back to defend yourself, you end up killing the person, God says you are innocent. Okay? Now, we have to clear some things up here. First of all, uh, some of you have the wrong attitude about this. You read this and you're like, yes! Okay? <laughs> You've got, you know, you're one of those gun guys and, and you're just like, please, Lord, someone break into my house tonight. <laughs> that is not the attitude of this passage here at all. Not the attitude. Okay? In fact, we have to look at the context a bit because when we think of robbery, we tend to think of burglary and we're thinking of a totally different situation than what God was making this law for. 
When I think of burglary today and what is a normal for people who've had their houses breaking into, you know, I think of some 15-year-old punk who's bored. He needs to actually just be put to work. Actually, he just needs a really good spanking. But anyway, <laughs> he's 15 years old. He doesn't have a job, but he should. He should have been spanked growing up, but he wasn't. And now he's making some dumb decisions. He's got some dumb friends. He breaks into your house to steal your TV or because of a dare or to get some petty cash. And so now you say, Exodus 22:2, ha ha, caught you. And you shoot him. No. That is, not, that is not what God's saying. I'm going to show you the next verse too to show you proportionality. Okay? That it's not burglary he's thinking of here. In those days, uh, breaking in was not... Pe- First of all, people didn't live in big houses with all kinds of flashy electronic gadgetry. Okay? Most, most people who were reading this law in those days, they had almost nothing that was worthwhile stealing. They were just living in little houses with very bare furniture. Only a few things. If there was anything in their houses worth stealing, for many of them, it would just be maybe a little bit of silver that, was, that they had saved up after the last harvest, which was going to help them live and sustain themselves until the next harvest. And you couldn't put that silver in a bank. They didn't have banks and have RSP plans or any of that sort of stuff. They didn't have insurance. So you hide that silver somewhere in your house. Okay? And if someone takes that silver, I mean, again, there's no deductible. You don't just go and pay a deductible and you get it back. There's no, I was talking to someone just this morning who had, uh, uh, you know, an, an electronic gadget stolen from them at the, at the mall in Winnipeg yesterday. And I'm like, oh, what are you going to do? That's too bad. That was your birthday present. He said, oh, we bought it on Visa. So I just get it all back on insurance. I'm like, what a system. <laughs> they didn't have that back then. If someone took your silver, it's gone. There's no safety net, social net to catch you. So if someone breaks in and takes that, your family's going to suffer some serious consequences, not just you're going to go a couple of days without your TV. Okay? Second of all, it wasn't 15-year-old kids in need of a spanking who were breaking into people's houses. These Usually in Bible times, uh, robbery was a violent thing. Okay? And so there's a real element of danger here. It's nighttime. Someone's breaking into your house or stealing something that could have huge consequences for your family. There's an element of danger. And I want you to notice here, God expects the man of the house, the dad, the husband, the grandpa, the oldest kid, whatever, the oldest son, to defend the family. And if you kill the guy who's breaking in while you're defending yourself and your family, you're innocent. Now I want you to see the justice and mercy and goodness of God. If we read the next verse, we'll also see that there's some proportionality here. He says this, But if it happens in the daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. And so we see proportionality, okay? Now some of you might be thinking, Okay, so I'm allowed to defend myself at nighttime, but not in the day. It's not that at all. I'm going to show you a bunch of stories in just 10 seconds here. Um, that show you're allowed, it's not, it's, God's not saying it's okay to defend yourself now and it's not okay to defend yourself now. You're allowed to defend yourself in the daytime too. What he's talking about here is not to excess. You shouldn't be looking to kill the person. And in the daylight, when you can see better and it's not all the confusion, you should be able to defend your household, you and whoever is with you, in the daytime, you should be able to do it without having to kill them. So it's proportionality, not excess. Do you see the goodness of God in this? Four... Bible stories, and I could show you many, many more, but I want you to write these down. I'm going to put them up there, and you can go and read these during the week. It's important because you can start to understand how does God think. Most of us have very little clue about how God thinks about these matters, and so we're not, allowed, not able to bring his wisdom to bear in a world that needs wisdom on these issues. Self-defense, Genesis 14, 11 to 20, um, for a wicked alliance of four kings, attacks Sodom, destroys it, kidnaps all the men, women, and children, and takes them away. Part, who is living in Sodom? Abraham's nephew, Lot, and all of his family. Okay? Abraham hears about it, so these wicked people come and take his nephew and their whole family away and, and kidnap. Think of how you would feel, right? Again, this isn't fairy tales, this is real stories, real people. Abraham hears this. He does not say, well, let's negotiate with them, and hopefully something good will come out of this. Let's just hope for the best. Let's turn the other cheek. And maybe through being weak, they're going to do something good and and bring them back. He doesn't do any of that. He arms all of his servants with swords and spears. And they run the bad guys down, kill a bunch of them, and get the women and children back. And Lot. They stand up 
for the innocent and the weak and the helpless. And Melchizedek, priest of the high priest of the most high God, meets Abraham on the way back and says, most blessed are you by God. It's most certainly condoned by God in that story. 1 Samuel 30, verse 3 to 18. David and his men go out to do some things. When they come back, the city has been raised and an evil race of people known as the Amalekites had come in. They'd raised the city to the ground. Again, kidnapped all the women and children, all their wives and children. Again, this is not a fairy tale. Real people went through this at a real point in history. How would you feel? And we talk about theories like, yeah, nonviolence, and, and, it, but it didn't, and we don't think of innocent Tutsi men, women, and children being killed. And we don't think of David and his men and all of them kidnapping these horrible people. How would you feel? They're weeping. They are so broken up. They want to kill David because they're so broken up. They don't know what to do with themselves. David goes to prayer. Oh God, what should I do? And God says, go get them back. Oh, weapons, horses, chase them down. A lot of killing. Come back with the wives and children. By the way, can I just say something here right now? One of the reasons I think this is so important is uh, one of the things I fear in our generation is that we are raising up a, a generation of young men who are wimps. We teach them over and over and over again, never use violence. The biggest thing is don't use violence. Don't hit back. Don't ever. You know what? That is the wrong thing to be teaching boys. We don't teach them to go beat up people, but we certainly teach them to stand up for the weak and the helpless. If my boy comes back from the playground someday, and I hope it happens, with a black eye, and I ask him, how did you get that black eye? <laughs> and he says to me, well, some kids were picking on a little kid there, and I said, over my dead body, and I'm going to take him out for supper that night. <laughs> you stick up for people. We should be reading our boys these types of stories and showing them how to channel the God-given thing that he has put inside of them to stand up for truth and justice. Amen. Nehemiah 4, 8 to 17. The Jews have been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They come back. While they're, while they're gone, a group of people comes in and starts to take their land over. And uh, these people would later be known as Samaritans. They were the offspring of uh, Israelites from the northern tribes of Israel mixing with Assyrians. And these uh, Samaritans, they're not called that yet in the Old Testament, but they would later on in the New Testament. These Samaritans hate the Jewish pe people. There's an ethnic hatred there. And so Nehemiah, you know, uh, Cyrus sends the Jews back. You get this scraggly little band of Jews comes back, starts trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And these Samaritans come to them and they say, we hate it that you're here and we're going to kill you. We're going to attack you in the nighttime. We're going to attack you in the day. You don't know when we're going to come, but we are going to kill all of you. And so what does Nehemiah do? It doesn't say turn the other cheek. Remember last week we saw that turn the other cheek doesn't apply to that situation. Nehemiah says to all of the men, he says, put a sword on. When you go to sleep, you have a sword. And when you go to work, you have a sword. And they would work with one hand on their sword. They'd have one hand. They'd be working, rebuilding the walls. Why? Nehemiah says, defend yourselves against these hateful and evil attackers. Esther 8, 9 to 12. You know what? If we, don't, if we do not raise up a generation of men with courage, we're going to have a lot more Rwandas. We're going to have a lot more of them. Because someone has to stand up to evil sometimes. There's a place for it. It's all over the Bible. Esther 8, 9 to 12. Haman is Xerxes' second-hand man. He hates the Jewish people. He gets a law passed that on a certain day, all the Persians can turn on their Jewish neighbors in the Persian Empire, kill them, and take their stuff. Much like what happened at the beginning of World War II in Germany. Haman gets this law passed. Esther and Mordecai are horrified. They pray and fast for three days. They go to the king. They reveal Haman's plot. The only problem is the Persians have this thing where you can't take a law back. So what are you going to do? Holy Spirit gives them some creative advice. He says, pass a new law. They pass a new law. There's a new date before the date when the Persians are going to kill them all. There's a new date when the Jews can defend themselves against all their enemies. They send the law out into all the nation. I mean, that's just wisdom, okay? They send it out and God helps the Jewish people and they are able to defend themselves against all their enemies. That's self-defense, Okay? The Bible clearly condones the use of force in the following circumstances. Now we'll look at what, where it doesn't. But we'll first, just review this. The Bible clearly condones the use of force to defend yourself, to defend your family, to defend your nation, to rescue the weak and the helpless. Okay, and we looked at number four. I put a couple of verses there. We don't have time to talk lots about that today, but we touched on it last week as well. 
All right? So now we need to ask the question, well, when do we not use force, right? When do we not use force? Those are the times to use force. When do we not use force? Clearly, there's times when we don't. And last week, we started to talk about that famous story, the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And uh, the whole part there, you know, where Peter pulls out his sword, right? Famous story. Judas comes to betray uh, Jesus. The soldiers come to grab him. Peter pulls out a sword, goes for the head. The guy ducks, takes off his ear. Jesus says, don't do that. And lots of people have looked at that story over the years, as we said uh, last week, and they've said, see, Jesus doesn't want us ever to resist. But there's a part of that famous story that, for some reason, most of us have missed all these years, right? And we looked at it last week. I'm just reviewing just a little bit here. I mean, I think this story is why most of you came back, because I didn't explain it to you last week, and I said I would do it this week, so now I'm going to do it. There's a part of that story we don't pay attention to. We pay attention to the part where Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. We don't pay attention to the fact of why did Peter have a sword with him to begin with, the fact that just hours before, Jesus had told Peter to bring a sword. So what's all that about? Let's read the passage and let me tell you. And he, this is Jesus speaking, said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing, okay? I'm going to come back to that just in a moment too because earlier in, their minute, in Jesus' ministry, he had sent the disciples up, out all around Israel and he said, don't bring anything with you. No money bag, no sword, no, none of that sort of stuff. You're just going to do ministry by trust. Okay? But now he's going to change the instructions. People have taken those first instructions and said, this is how ministry is always supposed to be done. It's not true. It was for one point in time, he's now changing the instructions. Okay? He says, but now, he said, but now. See, he knows he's just about to die. Everything's about to change. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So something, Jesus is about to die and he's telling his disciples a major change in how you live and minister is, is coming. And Jesus is not joking here, by the way. A lot of times, again, this is how we read our Bibles. Anything we don't like or doesn't make sense, we just glaze right over it. These are instructions from Jesus. The disciples have to do whatever he says. He says, if you don't have a sword, from now on you have to have one. That's a command. You do it. So he tells them, sell your cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For it is written, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Okay, so now let me answer for you the question, why did Jesus tell them to bring swords and then forbid Peter to use them, okay? Well, it's actually not much of a mystery now that we've looked at what the rest of Scripture has to say about for the use of force, okay? Simple process of elimination tells us Jesus was not telling the disciples to bring swords so that they could convert people by the sword. Accept Jesus or die. Nope, okay? I can show you many verses in the New Testament. We won't waste time with that right now. Jesus clearly did not want them advancing Christianity by force, Okay? He also didn't tell them to bring swords because he wanted them to attack and rob people, obviously. So what's left to use a sword for? Self-defense. You don't use a sword to shave with, okay? He doesn't want them to attack with it. He doesn't want them to convert people with it. He wants them to have it for self-defense. Well, what would they need to defend themselves from? And why didn't they need to defend themselves before when he sent them out to do ministry? Let me give you a little bit of context. See, here in modern-day, comfortable North America, we take for granted the fact that we can travel safely anywhere we like, pretty much. If you want to drive down to Minneapolis, you don't worry about uh, assassins jumping out at you on the interstate and killing you and your family. When you drive to Winnipeg, someone said they do. Wow. <laughs> Inner healing, my friend. Um, when you drive to Winnipeg, you're not worried about lawless gangs roaming the Trans-Canada to take you. If you want to drive to Regina, okay, you might fear crazed Rough Rider fans, okay? But you don't fear people shooting at you as you drive along the highway. We just take for granted this safe travel, and then we read the Bible with our modern mindset. And the thing you have to do is you have to go back to Jesus' time and think about how were roads in their day. Here's the thing about roads in Jesus' day. Many roads around the world were very dangerous and travel to any distant place was inherently dangerous because there were many places, even in the Roman world but outside of the Roman Empire as well, there were many places where lawless bands roamed around robbing innocent passerby. I mean, just look at some of Jesus' il illustrations. His whole illustration of the Good Samaritan is about what? A man goes for a, mo for a walk from Jerusalem to Jericho and gets viciously attacked by bandits on the way. 
It was a common thing in those days, okay? And Jesus, now you say, well, why? Okay, again, well, why the swords? Because when he sent them out to do ministry the first time, he told them not to bring anything. Well, let me tell you why. The first times when he sent them out to do ministry, he only sent them out to do ministry with, to the towns of Israel. Essentially, their own backyards, their own hometowns, their own home culture, traveling roads in a very small province, which was relatively safe, but traveling roads they were familiar with to do ministry with people they were familiar with in towns and culture that they were familiar with. And Jesus said, you know what? To do ministry in your own backyard, you don't need anything, trust God. Trust God at all times. But in this case, you don't don't need anything along with it. But now Jesus in his compassion is just about to die and he knows that just after he dies, intense persecution is going to break out and is going to scatter his followers out throughout the world. And in his compassion, he can see them He can see them traveling in faraway places, in cultures where they are strangers and aliens and outcasts, on lonely roads that are patrolled by dangerous criminals. And they're fleeing for their lives, them and their families, as they are persecuted for following him. And in his compassion, he gives them some tremendously wise advice. Last time I said you didn't need anything. This time, actually, you need to have a sword with you. Why? Self-defense against criminals. Now, there's only two swords among the 12 disciples when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's no accident that Peter gets it. I mean, he's the one who wants to use it, probably the most. There wasn't much of a fight. You guys can fight over the other one. I'm getting this one, okay? (laughs) So Peter gets instructions, carry a sword with you from now on. Now Judas comes, and he's going to arrest Jesus, and Peter's like, here's my chance. Praise God. (sighs) And Jesus says, Peter, do I have to spell everything out to you? Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, look at this here. Jesus says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now is not the time. Why is now not the time? Why is it okay to defend yourself again? <laughs> Testing. Am I still there? I'm still there. Why is it okay to defend myself against robbers on a dangerous road and not against soldiers who are coming to, resist, to, coming to arrest Jesus? Let me tell you why. The Bible is very clear that there is a big difference, and this is so important. There is a big difference between what you do when a violent criminal attacks you and what you do when the civil authorities come to arrest you. Big difference. Violent criminal attacks you on a road, violent, rebellious, evil person, you can defend yourself and your family. The secret police come to your door to arrest you because you love Jesus and to take you downtown to beat you in some prison, you do not fight back with force. You can run, you can hide, but you do not fight back, not with force. See, there's a time and a place, when, when not. See, and that's why throughout the New Testament, you'll find all these cases where, the, where Jesus' followers are not resisting. It's because they're being persecuted. And a best testimony when the government comes to persecute you is to love them, hold your head high, and let them persecute you while you praise God. And that's what they do right throughout the New Testament. The soldiers show up to flog them. They do not try to stab the soldiers or fight the soldiers off. They praise God and people get saved. The soldiers come to arrest them and throw them into prison. They praise God in the prison. You can't stop them from praising. But Jesus says when you're on a lonely road and a band of lawless men come, that's not a testimony to lie down for them. Then you defend yourself. Peter got this message. Look what he writes. Later in his life, 1 Peter 2, verse 13 to 23, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's the government, the police, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows. Now look at this. We don't just submit to the government when they're good to us. We submit when they are unjust to us, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, so it's unjustly, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. By the way, this again is why I, uh, one of my heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 
Because remember before, he used nonviolent resistance. And guess what? That was the right thing to do because it was his government that was oppressing him. And so they didn't fight back. They did just what the disciples did. In that situation, it was the right thing. It's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. So let's just finish with this last screen up there. Here's the recap. When force is allowable to defend yourself and family from criminals, to defend your nation from attack, to rescue the weak and the helpless, when is it not allowable to defend yourself from oppression by the civil authorities, to defend yourself from persecution by the civil authorities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for your wisdom. I pray that you would enable us to raise up a generation of godly young men and women who have courage and discernment and love, who can suffer persecution with love and who can stand up to evil with courage. I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. In your name I pray. Amen.